Okay, Psalm 33, verses 1 through 5. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now, let me ask you, looking at the psalm, is there something that strikes you as different from what we've come usually to expect right at the start? Okay, no title. There's a first psalm since Psalm 10. It's not had a title. And Psalm 1 and 2 didn't have a title. Psalm 10 didn't have a title. Now, the Septuagint did have a title, and it adds of David. But the Hebrew text here doesn't, most of the manuscripts of it. But but anyway, um, and so what kind of psalm, and it's not always easy to characterize this, but this one may be pretty easy to characterize from verse 1. What kind of psalm is that? Praise. Praise. So sing for joy. Sing for joy to the Lord. O righteous. He describes God's people as righteous in verse 1 and as being upright. That is a description of who we are that is also a challenge to live up to this. Did you notice the similarity between 3211 32.11 and 33.1. In 32.11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Just as they were told to shout for joy in 32.11, so they are in 33.1. As the righteous and upright were addressed in 32.11, so they are in 33 verse 1. The lack of a heading there kind of helps tie those together even more so. And the connection there. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and praise Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, this is the first time specifically that we have found the mention of instruments in the book of Psalms. Uh, it's not the last time we will see it, but it is the first time that we've specifically seen instruments included. Often, not saying always, but often in the Old Testament, instruments were connected to the temple. That may be very important. Second Chronicles 29-25, for example, where Hezekiah stationed Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, according to the command of the Lord. And Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet, for the command, of the, for the command was from the Lord through the prophets. Now that definitely says instrumental music in the Old Testament was by God's command. It's also connected with the temple. And other parts of the temple have been fulfilled in Jesus. 
Is it possible this also has? My point tonight is not to get into an extensive discussion about that. We may, we may sometime. I, I would like to. But I just wanted to kind of introduce that to you. By the way, I, I'm not... Brad, didn't you tell me you were getting a lot of the songs from a Presbyterian mm-hmm. side? And uh, tonight's. <laughs> what's that? All of them have been except tonight. Okay, all of them except tonight. <laughs> but um, there are Presbyterians that have given up the instrument as well, even today in modern times feeling that it doesn't fit the New Testament. And that group, I think, just believes they can sing the Psalms. And and so what I'm saying is this position has not been unique in church history, in American church history, or completely unique in present day church history, though though of and I'm saying that position to to not use the instrument in worship. But All of this, give thanks to God, sing praises to Him, and He describes the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord is upright. Notice that the believers were identified in verse 1 as the upright. And that is a description of His Word. The Word of the Lord is upright. And all His work is upright. Faithfulness, And that word faithfulness is connected to the Hebrew word, Amen. But God is faithful, God is dependable, God is reliable. In verse 1, believers were identified as righteous ones. In verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. It is not just that God is righteous and just. But God loves these qualities. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, uh, particularly verse 24, uh, let him boast, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things says the Lord. God loves these things. God delights in these things. These are God's joy, righteousness and justice. David did righteousness and justice. 2 Samuel 8, 15. Solomon, 1 Kings 10, verse 9. And the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. This psalm will emphasize all of these qualities of God. God is faithful. He is reliable. He is dependable, verse 4. He is righteous and just, verse 5. And then His loving kindness will be emphasized later in verse 18. And then when we get to verse 22, that word will also be used. Now, sing a new song. And we have a word, we have a song in our book. The new song. Not saying it was connected to this new song. Um, That phrase, a new song, is used about seven, eight times in the Old Testament. One of them, look at Psalm 40, verse 3. Psalm 40, verse 3. He will put a new song in my mouth, 
a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. But there it speaks of God putting a new song, a song of praise in my mouth. Now, now there are other references uh, which I can give you if if you want to uh, ask about them. Uh, About the new song, uh, 96-1, 98-1, or a couple of other references in Psalm. But the new song is often connected in the Bible with a new act of deliverance, with a great victory in battle, or a new act of deliverance. And so when God acts on behalf of His people, and God gives them victory over the foe, then He is filling their mouths with a new song. And we sing to celebrate God's great salvation what what do you all see there anything your questions about it okay verses 6 through 9 will emphasize creation by the word of the Lord the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth all their host He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now, this is an easy question. Okay. Mark, you're visiting with us. I think you can answer this question. When you read those verses, verses 6 through 9, what passage of Scripture do you think of? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Genesis 1. Very good. Genesis 1. And God speaks in Genesis, and things happen. God says, Let there be light, and there was light. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Now, that word, breath, can also be translated spirit. Breath, spirit, wind. All of those can translate that same word. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was upon the face of the deep. It's the same word, but the breath of His mouth. The point is, God spoke all the worlds into existence. Now, I state this sometimes in preaching a lesson on Isaiah 40, and these details are in a book by Jack. Uh, Cottrell in his book God the Creator and the more I ponder them the more overwhelming it is but if one could start at the end of our galaxy and travel the speed of light which of course no one has done but it would still take 100,000 years to get from one end of our galaxy to the other the distance between us and the next neighboring galaxy 
is greater than that. And there are multitudes. I don't know the exact number, nor do I know if anyone does, of galaxies in the observable universe. I'm not making a statement about the age of the earth. I'm making a statement about the magnitude of the universe. And God spoke it into existence, John. I actually heard it stated recently that there are estimated 200 billion stars in our galaxy and 120 trillion galaxies. Okay. In the ever-expanding universe. Well, it's trying to keep up with the national debt, but um, <laughs> so, but yeah, that is that's pretty amazing. That, I mean, that, it really, and and who can count all of that? Just like Abraham, look at the stars if you can count them. But all of this should lead us to stand in awe of the Creator. And there are moments where I I have seen something. I can remember when I was on the West Coast. They wanted to take me to a waterfall in in Oregon, which I was very careful to stay very far back from the edge. But just looking at the beauty of that and looking at, at some other moments in life, it's breathtaking to see what God has done. And yet, always remember that God in all His glory dwarfs creation itself. Creation itself is small compared to the greatness of God. He spoke and all of this happened. How powerful must He be? The host that are mentioned in Psalm 33 verse 6 would refer to the stars in Genesis 2 verse 1 as the Bible is summing up uh, creation. It says the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host, all their host. So the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and puts them in his storehouse. Now, now, some of the people in the ancient world, and I'm sure some people today, believe the stars control their destiny. Well, God is the one who put all the hosts there, who spoke them into existence, who created the stars. Uh, they uh, were terrified by the water as some powerful force encroaching upon humanity. I, I think the point of verse 7 ultimately is in God's control of the waters that while in the ancient Near East and their stories of how the world came to be, uh, their God struggled to to uh, combat the sea. God can gather it together as a heap and lay it in the deep as a storehouse. God puts a boundary on the sea and says you can't go any further. Jeremiah 5.22 is a passage that said this. And in verse 9, He spoke, it was done, He commanded, and it stood fast. God spoke it all into existence. And God's Word that created the world, God's Word also preserves the world. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, 
and verse 7, by His Word, the present heavens and the present earth are being reserved for fire for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. It's God's Word who spoke the world into existence. It's God's Word who sustains the world and keeps it operating. It's God's Word that does all of this. Now, I skip verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Just look around us at creation. Look around us. Look at how awesome all God has made is. If we see how awesome all He made is, How much more the Maker. All of this should lead us to fear Him. To stand in utter awe of God. If we can stand in awe of Niagara Falls or some beautiful mountain, how much more God Himself. Let all the earth Fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Creation puts all these other truths in their proper place. The reason God is sovereign over history is because God created all the world and He all depend on Him for their existence. The reason He is the judge of all is because He is the maker of all and He knows each person's heart. And all of these truths are interrelated. I can remember a few years ago at um, FC Lectures, a preacher that Many, if not all of you would know, made a reference to atheists. And he says, they're fools. And I have to admit, that caught me by surprise too. I kind of jumped. But he says, listen, let's not be ashamed sometimes to say what the Bible says. They are denying what is absolutely undeniable. Everything on earth. I know, even though I've never been to the factory where they make chairs like this, I know there is one somewhere. Because we see the evidence of it. And the same thing exists. I'm not saying there aren't moments to reason with some, to be kind to some and not take that approach. But there are moments too where to say, if you're denying this, you're foolish. And I particularly feel that way about some I had in school (laughs) who proclaimed themselves as atheists today. Denying we're accountable to God isn't going to make it so. It isn't going to make it so. But this God, who is Lord of creation, is God of history as well. 
in verses 10 through 12, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Now, I want you to notice because it's laid out very clearly here in past these passages. It's a contrast. A great job of the teacher is not to discover something undiscoverable, but to simply call attention to what is very clear that we might read over quickly. But notice in verse 10, he mentions the counsel, the counsel of the nations. He mentions the council of the nations. Then he's going to contrast this in verse 11 with the council of the Lord. In verse 10, he also mentions the plans of the people. Plans of the peoples, plural. And he mentions in verse 11, the plans of his heart. Speaking of God's heart. Now, in verse 10, the council of the nations, the council of the nations, he nullifies. But, In verse 11, His counsel stands. Just as creation stands when God speaks it into existence, in verse 9, His counsel stands. In verse 11, or verse 10, the plans of the peoples He frustrates. And then in verse 11, the plans of His heart the Bible says, are from generation to generation. The plans of His heart are forever. So, the council of the nations is nullified. The council of the nations, council of the Lord stands. The plans of the people are frustrated and the plans of His heart are are from generation to generation. We can say more about this, but I want you to notice something. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Do you notice that He uses the words people and nation? He uses the same words there that He used in verse 10, but He uses them now as a singular He talks about the nation and the people. Here he is specifically talking about God's people, about Israel. Do you know there are only a couple of times in the book of Psalms that it's called attention to that the Lord has chosen His people? I think it's Psalm 135 verse 4 where the Bible says the Lord has chosen Jacob. 
But there are a group of people who aren't to be fighting God's purpose and frustrating His purpose and planning and counseling against Him. And that nation is uh, His people, Israel. But God is sovereign over history. He thwarts the plans of the nations. Listen, and this is a good uh, passage to write down beside of Psalm 33, 10 and 11. Uh, in Proverbs 21, verses 30 and 31, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. None of these things prevail. And by the way, that word that's used, frustrate, is used in Numbers 30 verse 8 to annul the vow of another. And that's what God does to the plans of the nations. He stops them, He annuls them, He frustrates them. Uh, all this kind of language. And we find at times in Israel's history, they were plotting and planning against the Lord too. I will say this. That sometimes with a Christian worldview, and I'm no scientist or an expert in that field, but I think it's a lot easier to defend God as the God of creation than sometimes to say God is the God of history. When you see all the horrible things that have happened in history. And, and, and I can remember talking to an atheist in the Czech Republic. And unfortunately, they are everywhere there. Um, and him just pressing on why God would have allowed Hitler to kill so many Jews. And, and I probably shared this with you before. And I gave some explanations. But after he kept asking the question and wasn't going to get off of it, I said, well, let me ask you a question. If there is no God, how can you explain why what Hitler did was wrong? He didn't ask that question anymore. Because if you eliminate God, you you are searching blindly for a way to explain why there is good and evil. But I grant it, if you do believe in God, we don't understand those questions ourselves. Because we look at things in our world And we wonder, why are they this way? North North Korea and all the that goes on there, every year they are the number one oppressors of people who believe in Jesus. And I, I know I've prayed, not as much as I should, I'm sure, for that nation. And still, they are in total darkness. May God have mercy on those people. But it is hard to explain. 
But somehow, through all the ups and downs, through all the brutality and cruelty of human history, God is somehow accomplishing His purpose. I can't completely see it, but I know He can. As one writer said, history can be truly understood only from God's perspective. Now, what thoughts do you all have right here? Then I think in verse 8 that, you know, it's not just the Jews who are to fear and to stand yeah. in awe of God, but it, it, it's all of us. Yes. In Romans 1, we'll emphasize it's talking about um, God's creation. He talks about all men are without excuse because they can see evidence of God's power and God's glory in creation. And that is why, at least it is, it is fascinating to me that Among most people who have ever lived, though they may not have heard, or many may not have heard of Jesus Christ, they believed in God. Because there's just so much visual evidence to defend that belief. And, um, and it still would be true today, in spite of the nations which seek to enforce atheism. But that's a good point. This is not limited to Israel. It's not limited to the Jewish nation. It is a reference to all the earth and all the inhabitants of the world. So, the Lord is creator of all. The Lord is sovereign of all. He frustrates the plans of the nations. He nullifies their counsel. And He is the one who is the judge of all. The word all will be used three or four times in your translation in verses 13 and through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all. He who understands all their works. Now, There's another word that's translated all at the beginning of verse 15, but but the phrase he sees all the sons of men in verse 13 and all the inhabitants of the earth, verse 14, and in verse 15 understands all their works. Uh, These are all the same particular Hebrew word for all. Notice how verse 13 and 14 are saying the same thing. The Lord looks from heaven... He sees all the sons of men. The first part of verse 14. From his dwelling place he looks out. Well that statement, from his dwelling place he looks out, in verse 14, is totally parallel to the first of verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven. At the end of verse 13, he sees all the sons of men. In verse 14, all the inhabitants of the earth. So so verses 13 and 14 saying the same thing twice. The Lord looks down from heaven. The Lord looks down from His dwelling place. He sees all the sons of men. He sees all the inhabitants of the earth. Just like we all see enough about Him to acknowledge Him as God in verse 8 that John called attention to. So now in verses 13 and 14, He sees all of us. And it says He fashions the hearts of them together. That word fashion is... uh, 
it's it's a form of the same word used in Genesis two in verse seven when um, or it's from the same root word which is that God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It can refer to God as the Potter and we as his his creation. God fashions us and makes us, and He understands our works. He He sees us and knows everything about us. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're bold enough to answer. Okay? When you read those verses, do those verses sound threatening or assuring? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Explain that, David. Uh, To those who are not following God's paths, they're very threatening. Yeah. To those who are His people, they can be very comforting. Yes. I, I think that's exactly right. I think the answer to that question depends on where we are in our relationship with God and how we perceive ourselves in our relationship with God. I can see someone looking upon these words as being... Ooh, the Lord sees all the sons of men and He knows all their works. He sees all of us and He knows all we do. Now, nobody's got a perfectly clean slate there. And so I can understand that. But keep that idea in mind. And we'll come back to it in just a second. Verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Now again, let's just set forth what is very simply stated in this text. First of all, he mentions three people or groups who are powerful. He mentions kings, warriors. He mentions horses. He mentions kings. He mentions warriors. He mentions horses. Now, uh, also... Uh, each of these are associated, the king is associated with an army. The warrior is associated with strength. The horse is associated with might. So each of these are associated with some kind of power. It, it, the New American Standard actually uses the word strength or both the horse and the warrior. Okay? But, notice that each time it is modified by the same Hebrew word, um, it is translated different English words. It translated a mighty army, great strength, and great strength, but it could be translated great each time. The king has a great army. 
the warrior has great strength. And the horse has great strength. But in spite of the king's great army and the warrior's great strength and the horse's great strength, the emphasis on the text is that the king is not saved. The warrior in verse 17 or verse 16 is not delivered. And the horse does uh, not... um, Deliver. Some of your versions have rescue. But in each of these cases, the things these powerful people depend upon for strength and power don't work. One writer made a statement. And it really it's so it's obvious when you think of it. But he said what verses 16 and 17, the gay is the foreign policy of every single nation in the world today. They're all depending upon their army, their strength, and their power in some way. But the Bible says that's not how victory comes. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by its great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Oh, there are times in history it seems like uh, that as as one unbeliever said uh, in the 1700s, God favors the great armies. Uh, It's funny how God is always on the side of the great armies. But there are times in unexplained things in history that shows God turns things upside down and God gives victory to those that are lesser and less powerful. And we can think, if you look at the history of Israel, there were all kinds of times when Israel had the smaller number and the enemy had the bigger number. And God gave Israel the victory. There's a time in the book of Judges where the Midianites had a big army and there was a judge who had 300 people and they prayed to God and it said where they drank water was how they determined who was going to go fight. And he went with 300 people in the battle against the Midianites. Do you remember who that was? Having trouble with that. Gideon. Yes, was that right, Evelyn? Yeah, Gideon. Gideon. Okay, it's Gideon. So, Gideon did that. So there are times God gave His people victory against a much greater army, but there are times that God's people had a bigger army. And they lost. Look at Second Chronicles 24. Second Chronicles 24, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. It came about at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him, against Joash. They came to Judah and to Jerusalem and destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans, listen to this, came with a small number of men. 
Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. There the Arameans are attacking Judah. They have the small number. Judah has the large number. And God gives His people into the hands of the enemy because they had forsaken God. They have forsaken God. A horse does not help if you forsake the Lord. The king and the warriors do not help if you forsake the Lord. Some boast in horses, some in chariots. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's a passage we've seen before, Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some in chariots, some in horses, but we in the name of the Lord. Now, verse 20 is going to come back to this. Verse 20 is going to come back to that idea. But look at verse 18 and think about the question that I asked a moment that David answered when I asked the question about, is God looking over us an assurance or it's a threat? But look at how it is an assurance clearly in verse 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Fearing God was spoken of in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Here, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death to keep them alive in famine. Now, however you answer the question in regard to verses 13 through 15, and I can understand both answers there. But particularly in this text, God's watchful eye is a sign of His love and care. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. He is watching over them in a special way on those who hope for His loving kindness. Not those who are hoping in their great army or their great strength or in their uh, mighty uh, horses but those who are waiting on His loving kindness. His eye is on them. What is He doing? Verse 19. Delivering them from death. Saving them from famine. Keeping them alive during famine. One of the great threats of an army like when the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem. They besieged Jerusalem largely for a year and a half. In Second Kings twenty four and twenty five, Jeremiah fifty two, they they besieged it for about a year and a half. There's no food. There's no water in the city. Can God keep alive a people in that circumstance? He can. God is watching over us. God is looking over us to sustain us. To support us, to strengthen us, particularly those who are His. Listen to three passages. One is Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy, I think it's 11 verse 12. Let me look here. Deuteronomy 11 verse 12. Yes. Listen to how this speaks of the Lord with His eye on His land. 
his temple and his people. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 12, the Bible says the land that you're coming to, the land of Canaan, is a land for which your God cares. The eye of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. God's watchful care is over the land of Judah. That was Deuteronomy or the land of Canaan. It was Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 12. In 1 Kings 8 in verse 29, as Solomon prays, he prays that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant prays toward this place. May your eyes be open toward this temple, toward this place. 1 Kings 8 and verse 29. And then in Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9, as uh, the prophet is rebuking Asa for seeking help from other places besides the Lord. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. You have acted foolishly in this, etc. But the Lord's eyes are upon you that He may support those who are His. Now, Back in Psalm 33, look over to Psalm 34, verses 14, uh, verses 15 and 16. Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are, are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off their memory, the memory of them from the earth. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. If you are one who fears God, if you are one who hopes in His loving kindness, God's eyes are on you in a special way. Now I know even those promises leave us with a how and why when we think of things that happen terribly as we have been informed recently of the person in Alabama who is recklessly endangering the lives of two young Christians and killing one of them. I don't know all the answers. But I do know God keeps His promises. And if God's promises don't seem to come true in this world, understand that's not the end of the story. And as I told one parent once, and it's always easier to be saying this than it is receiving it, but he brought up the subject it was several years after the fact. I said, can you imagine what it would be like, what it will be like to see him again in heaven? When you think about Jacob weeping after thinking Joseph was dead and not seeing him for 22 years, what will it be like? 
to be reunited in a land where we never die. I hope you don't have to use that in your personal life. But may those words help us and strengthen us. In verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. These people look not to a mighty army or not to a war, its warriors or not to its horses for victory, but they are looking to the Lord. They are looking to the Lord. He is our help and our shield. They are putting their confidence and their trust in Him. And God's loving kindness, which was mentioned in verse 5 and verse 18, is mentioned again in verse 22. The same people that were rejoicing and singing for joy in verse 1 are in verse 21 rejoicing as well. Okay. Now, I'm going to need your help on this because, honestly... I, I worried we'd get halfway through Psalm 33. And so, I didn't spend as much time thinking about Christ so fulfills the psalm. So, um, but I'm going to need, but there are a couple of things. Okay, what are some things that you see, Brad? Um, obviously, I couldn't help but think of Colossians 1. Um, with Jesus being the creator. I mean, he is the okay. one who speaks those words and brings everything into uh, uh, the created being. Okay, very good. State. Very good. Well, Colossians 1 is a deep, deep passage. It's a deep passage. But, um, but it's, the Bible speaks of Psalm 33, praises God as creator, Brad is right that you have in Colossians 1, particularly 15 through 17, Christ is creator. Do you ever find Christ being described as creator elsewhere? And where? John 1. Okay, John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. And, and there's at least one other I can think of. You might be able to think of some others, but one I'm thinking of is Hebrews one, one and two. Through Him, God made the world. So Christ is the Creator. God, Christ, uh, are active in creation. God is Christ. It seems to be the agent through whom. God creates everything and how that work and whether we could even conceive that, how all that worked, I, I do not know. But it seems to be the case. Now, what else do you see? What else do you do you know? Christ is creator, that's right. In verse twelve there's a inherent tension between creation and always think of Jesus. In regards to an inheritance. Okay. Heir, joint heirs. Heirs of Christ. Uh, your um, heirs, joint heirs. 
I think that phrase is used in Romans 8, 28-29. Is that right, Mark? Where we're talking about. Um, but I, I did not emphasize that enough before in, in stating that, as Mark calls attention to that about inheritance. Um, it is interesting that, remember, which tribe was it that doesn't have a portion of land like the other tribes, but it was said the Lord is their inheritance. What tribe is that? Levi. Levi, tribe of Levi. Sometimes the people are said, it said their inheritance is God, but sometimes it said that God's inheritance is us. Wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. But you're right, through Christ we are heirs of God. Has anybody found that passage in Romans 8 yet? It's Romans. Let me look over there. Romans 8 and verse. Okay. May not be in Romans 8. Okay, that's your homework, people. We'll look that thing up. If I, if I tell you everything, you're not going, not going to learn anything. It's what I heard, which always was confusing to me in a dictionary. If I don't know how it's spelled, how am I going to look it up? But um, nonetheless, so but but this but the idea of an inheritance, as Mark was mentioning, but even the idea. Uh, also with creation of Jesus as the Word in John 1, in verses 1 through 3. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us in John 1, in verse 14. Um, That idea, too, of singing a new song, the only... It is used... Six or seven times in the Psalms, it's used once in Isaiah and once in Revelation. I, I think the only time it's used in the New Testament is in Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song. They sang a new song. Well, what is the new song? We said a new song is associated with a new act of God's deliverance. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Who is that song directed to? Who is that new song directed to there? Worthy are you because you with your blood saved every man and say your blood was for every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and you made them be a kingdom of priests. That song is directed to Jesus. In verse twelve, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So they sing this new song to the Lamb. And in a certain sense, we are not saved, though this was using it more in the sense of winning a battle 
of being victorious in a conflict, we are not saved by great strength. In a sense, but we are saved by the sacrifice of the Lamb. You were not redeemed with silver and gold from your feudal way of life from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of the Lamb without spot and without blemish. Just as in the Old Testament, the way that God sometimes saved people and nations doesn't seem to make sense. So it is true of the salvation through Jesus. It doesn't seem to make sense. But that's the way God confounds the wisdom of the wise. Micah, did you have a thought? Yeah. I I appreciate how Israel was the inheritance and, uh, and the nation, the people in verse 12. But in the time of Jesus, they were the council of the nations that were trying to bring down Jesus. Mm-hmm. And God confounds that. And yes. for us as well, we though we have can become the inheritance and be the nation, at one prior time in our lives, we were the nations that were conspiring and counseling and raging against against Jesus. And yeah, we have yes. we have been foiled. And you're you're when you're speaking of those places in Psalm thirty three, particularly verses ten through twelve, what what Psalm are you particularly you're, you're quoting you're referring to a Psalm, you may also, be aware of Psalm two. Okay, Psalm two, yes. Psalm two is having the same idea as uh the kings of the earth plot in vain and gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. But that's that's a very good point that the nations plotted and planned against him. But God frustrated their plans and nullified their plans in the resurrection of Jesus. And even those who had plotted and planned against him by his mercy can be his people chosen to be his inheritance. David? Okay. Romans. The spirit themselves bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs of joining us in Christ. Okay. Indeed, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's that is what I was looking at. Romans eight or seventeen, especially. Thank you, Dave. Well, it is it is powerful. Christy, did you have any more thoughts about it? Because I know. You've been anticipating this for weeks. Um, but go ahead, Brad. Um, one other thought. I, this isn't fully fleshed out of my brain, so I'll, I'll just speak and then you can critique it. But okay. I, I thought of the 16 and 17. And again, this idea of this, the king is not saved by a mighty army. I, I keep going back to the idea of the nation of Israel was wanting this militaristic type of Messiah coming in, gathering strength, and thinking that was how that they were going to be saved. I keep thinking of Peter drawing his sword and you yeah. know ready to fight to the death, and that the king is not saved by a mighty army. Um, that it was not by a militaristic essence mm-hmm. that the king is 
bringing victory. It was mm-hmm. through a different way, you know, like you said, just yeah. a completely anti-humanistic thought process that victory was obtained, not by any of those things. So, mm-hmm. well, I think I think what you're saying is these passages themselves should have been a little bit of a caution to them about what they were expecting the Messiah to be. And it's not it's not that those those pictures of the Messiah being a conquering king are there. But when you combine those pictures with passages like these, maybe they're helping to keep in perspective that he's conquering a different enemy than simply a foreign army, but he's conquering he's conquering sin and death. So I think that's a very good thought. And that's nineteen. That's verse nineteen. Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death. Yes, yes, that's right. Very good. So, you know, add to that, all to, that means in this context, deliver your soul from death is the idea you're not going to die. It, it takes on a different significance in Christ. That we're going to be raising the dead. Well, thank you. Very good thoughts. And I appreciate those. And, um, but, uh, Mark, would you want to lead us in a prayer? God, our great and awesome Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, uh, wonderful day that you have blessed us with. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have, we've had to be here together and to open your word this day. Lord, we thank you so much for the songs that we learned so much from, uh, for the stuff that these, these words and dwell on them and, Apply it to our lives, Lord. Be with us, Lord, as we continue through our week. Guide us through it. Help us to strive to live it for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Brad comes up here. I'm going to leave this on. I think we need to record these songs because these are these are good songs. But Brad, it's on you. It's on me, and it's on you people listening. We got to turn this thing off before we leave tonight. So after the song, if, we, if every one of us. Make that a goal. Maybe one of us will remember. And uh, we can turn that off afterwards. All right. Um, I really struggled with uh, uh, the psalm this week. Um, the, the source that I usually pull these from, I was completely unable to find a tune that would meld with it. And I struggled and struggled. So I found this one. Uh, it is not the best. Uh, it is from an Irish uh, hymnal from 1749 that this came from. And so the words are a little bit rough. Uh, the, it's, it's not quite as uh, polished as some of the others that we've have sung before. Um, I want to mention a couple things here. There's some words that we don't often use. Uh, even verse 1, comely, their second line, uh, that is attractive, uh, generally used of a woman. Uh, but So again, this idea of um, in the Lord rejoice, it's attractive, um, that people want to praise uh, God there. 
Verse 2, verity. I've never even heard that word before. Um, So I put the definition there. Uh, Verity is irrefutable truth. So again, um, God has done all of his work in verity. Um, Jump down to verse 8. Again, I bolded it there. Um, It uses the word from death to free their soul in dearth. So make sure you pick that up. Life unto them to yield. So that whole phrase is very um, tough there. Um, So I apologize in advance. Uh, for some of this, and we end on a the middle of a verse in verse nine, and uh, so anyway, this is the best I could do. Um, so, um, this one I worked on for several hours trying to find a um, <laughs> something that would at least bring this together. So anyway, we'll, we'll try it. Uh, so again, I don't have the the uh, uh, notes here, but the faith is a victory. So so that's what we'll go with. I'll try to slow down here. Ye righteous in the Lord rejoices, calmly and and right. That upright men with thankful voice shall praise the Lord of might. Jehovah praise with heart to Him, sing with the psaltery upon a ten-stringed instrument. Make haste with melody. Sing and play with loud noise skillfully. For writes the Lord's word, all this word is done in verity. To judgment and to righteousness, a love he bearer still, the loving kindness of the
counsel brings to naught which he then both to take and what the people do devise of none effect doth make oh but the counsel of the Lord does stand forever sure and of his heart the purposes from age to age endure that nation blessed is whose God Jehovah is and those a blessed people are whom for his heritage he chose the Lord from heaven looks he sees all sons of men for well he views all from his dwelling place that in the earth to dwell he forms their hearts alike and all their doings he observes great hosts and not King must shrink, no mighty man preserves. A horse for safety and defense, his honest heedful thing, and by the greatness of his strength, can no deliverance bring. Behold on those that do him fear, the Satisfied, he knows who on his mercy do with confidence rely. From death to freedom, and soul endure life unto them to yield. O soul, doth wait upon the Lord, he is our help and shield. Since in His holy name we trust, our hearts shall joyful be. Lord, let Thy mercy be on us as we do hope in Thee. All right, very good.